0: Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air Podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the senior director for institutional research and diversity at AAVMC. Today's show is the last show of our season two, and we will be talking about men in veterinary medicine. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Daryl Buss, Dr. Stacey Pritt, Dr. Doug Aspros, and William Willis, who happens to be a student at Purdue University as well as the producer of this podcast. Welcome, everybody.
1: Welcome. Welcome.
0: Hey. Thank you so much for being here. So as is our custom we'd like to give everyone a little moment or two to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their background. So Darryl why don't you go first?
1: Thank you Lisa. As noted I'm Darryl Buss. I am currently editor-in-chief of the Journal of Veterinary Medical Education. Prior to that I was Dean of Veterinary Medicine at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Wisconsin Madison for quite a long period of time. So I'll turn on to the next Panel member, William. Hi, my name is William Willis. I'm um, just finished my first
2: year at Purdue University's College of Veterinary Medicine, so I'm going to be a second year. So I'm a baby, baby vet right now, but I'm on my <laughs> way. I'm also, I'm also a man, so yeah, that's, <laughs> that should be my qualifications.
3: <laughs> Thank you, William. Doug. I am uh, Dr. Doug Aspros, I've been a companion companion animal practitioner since I graduated from Cornell back in the old days when there were very few women in the profession, been a practice owner, multiple practice owner, uh, very active in veterinary medicine, was on the Council on Education, was AVMA president in 2012-13, currently the chief veterinary officer for veterinary practice partners out of of Prussia
0: all right thank you and Stacy
4: thank you I'm Stacy Pritt I'm currently the AVMA vice president in that capacity I serve on the AVMA board of directors and I am the official liaison from the board of directors to the student AVMA as well as I serve as an advisor for the student AVMA professionally I started out in private practice and then transitioned into research compliance And so I'm currently
0: in research compliance at a medical school. Thank you. So as I mentioned, today's show is about men in veterinary medicine. So this year, this most recent academic year, 2016-17, men made up 19 and a half percent of veterinary students in the US. We know that this trend is persistent internationally, so beyond the US schools and we know that this trend is also persistent across race and ethnicity. In fact, men of color specifically in the US make up only 4% of veterinary students here. In 2007, AVMA declared it the year of the woman as the total number of women in the veterinary profession tipped past 50%. There's been a lot of articles about the shrinking number of men in veterinary medicine, but Not really a lot of solid studies kind of under to help us understand this phenomenon. So we do know a few things. We do know that contrary to popular belief, there is relative parity between men and women in the STEM disciplines that would typically feed into veterinary medicine. And we know that there's some gender differences as early as kind of infant age, where men and women express some different kinds of interest in different things that may manifest later in terms of career choice. those are a few things we know a lot more than that but we're going to just go ahead and dive in so doug where are the men
3: so my, my perspective on this was really colored by some uh, research that was uh, published well speculative research it was published on gender studies in stem professions or stem studies back in cornell in the 90s at that time there was a lot of focus on those academic tracks and trying to attract women into those STEM professions. And at the same time that there was a lot of institutional focus on that, here was veterinary medicine kind of in the backwater, making it all happen without anybody particularly trying to do it. And I think a lot of how we understand gender and professions, veterinary medicine doesn't really, doesn't really match those, those changes. I think a lot of the changes that I've seen since I graduated, because I graduated or entered veterinary college at the time when it was 80-20 it was or 90-10 the other way. I think there are a number of influences that came into veterinary medicine. One was the change from large animal, from food animal to companion animal. And while that probably happened in the 60s or started to happen in profession in the 60s, it really wasn't until the mid 70s or late 70s that women actually had the opportunity and were accepted into veterinary college the same time, the focus changed from, from your background, you know, how much you've actually worked with the species that they were expecting you to work with post-graduation to academic achievement. And women have been better academic achievers than men. And so I think all of that happened before a lot of the pink issues, you know, that, that men don't want to or, or they're, they're not attracted into uh, professions that are Overwhelming, overwhelmingly women, you know, the, the gender shift happened before that even had an opportunity to play much of the part, at least in the, in the 80s and 90s, as the profession changed.
0: It is important to separate the two, right? So there's the shift itself, which I think it was about 85, 86 is when the number of women exceeded the number of men in vet school. But by the time we get to the 90s, we're seeing a really increased persistence. It's not just a trend anymore. It's really, this is the way that it is. And what does that mean in terms of recruiting young men? The data also show that right after the passage of Title IX, within about a two to three year period, the number of women in vet school doubles. So we know that there's some kind of legal pieces here that also play a role. Daryl, do you have any comments kind of over the lifespan of your career?
1: Well, I would echo many of the things that that Doug referred to, and just adding to that a bit, the other thing that was occurring in parallel were some major demographic shifts away from the farm and into an urban environment. So I'm a graduate of the University of Minnesota, and for, in my own case, grew up on a small family farm, as did many of my classmates at the time. Obviously, the on-farm population has decreased dramatically over the same period of time we've just been talking about. So that meant that there were increasing, there have been increasingly fewer individuals from a farm background, not a hobby farm, but an actual working farm background who would have been exposed to veterinary medicine and, like me, develop an attraction to veterinary, and to veterinary medicine based on that exposure. So I think it is a multiple things all occurring in synchrony and all additive. Put it in that direction, the other factor over, let's say, the last two decades has also been the decline in men seeking even an undergraduate degree. And obviously, if they're not graduating from college in the first place, they're not going to be applicants to our program. So None of those, I think, in and in and of themselves explain the magnitude of shift. So I don't think there there is a silver bullet answer to why has that occurred. I think it's a mixture of many, many different factors, all occurring at roughly about the same periods of time.
0: Sure. Stacy, some thoughts there. So yes,
4: I entered veterinary school in ninety-three, and so that meant I graduated in ninety-seven. And so therefore, when I entered veterinary school, the shift had already occurred. At that time, it was about 55, 60% female, 40% male in the veterinary schools nationwide. By the time I was looking at veterinary medicine as a career choice, it was seen as a very viable career option for women. Whereas 20 years before that, righted around when Title IX came into play, it might not have been seen as a very viable career choice for women. So I had that opportunity at that time to get a lot of encouragement to go into veterinary medicine that might not have existed 20 years before that. The other thing I will say being at a medical school, although I I, I don't deal with students, is that there has been gender shifts within other healthcare professions aside from nursing. So if you look at human medicine, osteopathic medicine, those types of things, even law, And I think this goes back to Daryl's comments on who is getting the undergraduate degrees. We are seeing that gender shift in other areas. I agree though that we haven't seen it as dramatically as what's happened in veterinary medicine. And perhaps because the shift did happen, it happened rapidly and then it just kept snowballing. And that just has not happened in in
0: other professions. What can we do (laughs) to recruit more men? william i'd be kind of interested in hearing your story did you have role models did you have was it just something that you always knew that you wanted to do and if not how'd you get here
2: um i was born and raised in anchorage alaska so that's not the most traditional place to be born and raised but i kind of was surrounded by nature my whole life so i always want to do something with animals i actually did a mentorship program when I was in high school I did it with a veterinarian and I was like, oh, I definitely want to do this. And so I kind of made my path toward becoming a veterinarian. And even in undergrad, I was a biology major, but most of the people that wanted to be in veterinary school were in animal sciences.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And that class, those classes were mainly just women.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> I noticed this. And so my dad commented, like, oh, that's good. It was surrounded by girls. I'm like, OK, I guess. But, <laughs> but yeah, so making it to vet school, Um, I am surrounded by women, but it's a good thing. Um, But I think it could be more of, I know I didn't think that much about the debt-to-income ratio when I was making my plans to become a veterinarian, but I think some people are, and that could be a a serious, like, hurdle for some people. I think veterinary medicine right now is more of a professional passion, especially when you look at the income that you're looking at. You have to kind of put your logic aside for a second and be like, oh, I'm just going to be a veterinarian. And because I love animals, but some people can't do that. And men are very logical sometimes. So they end up not doing things that they're very passionate about.
1: But I think that William also hit on an important point regarding entering the classroom and finding it predominantly women in the sense that, you know, a number of studies have indicated that male students may be less likely to pursue professions that are largely constitutive women, that women are much more comfortable entering into professions that have been traditionally male, but it doesn't, it doesn't work so much the other way around. So I think that's a hurdle that we have, not unlike, uh, for example, nursing, who has been there for, for <coughs> a long time and is trying to move toward attracting more men into nursing with some of the same issues, you know, societally. I know some men have have faced some pushback from family and friends if they indicated that they had an interest in nursing, for example. Mm
3: -hmm. And I know
1: that from uh, relatives who, young men who became nurses, who found that same question posed to them. Veterinary medicine has been, has had this increase in proportion of women for a long enough period of time, I think, so that society is reasonably well attuned to it. And so I think that is how we are seen by uh, parents, uh, undergraduate students, and so on. I think that's just simply a reality. But I do think that's an important point and a hurdle that we need to address.
3: I think Daryl really touches upon, I think, the fact that veterinary medicine has become a caring profession. And I think you could argue that you know, thirty or forty years ago, it wasn't primarily a caring profession in that way, because we were just starting to focus on pets as being a a significant role for veterinarians. And even then, in the in the sixties, seventies, pets did not get the kind of care they're getting today. And I think the the face of the of the profession, the the profile of the profession has has changed. Not in a bad way, but in a way that perhaps is not as attractive to men uh, for the, maybe exactly the same reason that it can be attractive or more attractive to women.
4: So from my perspective, I remember being in veterinary school and in the late 90s and in the next decade when there would be articles, not in the peer-reviewed literature, but even including from Harvard economists about why there were so many men in veterinary medicine, they kind of defaulted to what Doug was saying. Women are naturally caregivers. This is the great profession for them. They can be nurturing. So they were really using stereotypical terms that our society has adopted for how women work and live in society versus looking at veterinary medicine as a a scientific and medical profession. And I think that clouded the view of a lot of people who might have considered veterinary medicine as a career or who had children or other relatives who were considering veterinary medicine as a career. Thankfully, we're not talking about that anymore. But I remember those days and those, those articles are still online if people want to find them. And so it, it made its way to that point of a caring profession. And then the next step was women are more caring than men. And so that's why we have more women in veterinary medicine. I never liked that because I worked with plenty of male colleagues when I was in practice in particular. They're just as caring and nurturing as women. There's no difference in my opinion. So I I think it's a great profession for people who want to work with people and animals.
3: I think that's true.
4: Go ahead.
3: I was going to say, I I agree with you totally. And and I I think getting into stereotypes is always fraught. But I think we're we're discussing what are markers or, or what what's what's driven the profession to be to do this gender flip and then stay gender flipped from what it was when certainly when I went and, and Daryl went to school. The research is not out there that but I've seen that that really explains it better than.
1: Well, yeah. I, wonder, I I wonder too if it's not important for veterinary medicine to continue to talk about about the breadth of opportunities in veterinary medicine because some of the work I've read in, in nursing, for example, of trying to attract more men, they found that many of the young men who are attracted are then particularly attracted into specialty areas such as ICU or emergency room nursing. And concurrently, looking at studies in medicine, those studies that I've read have shown that more women are oriented toward primary care Uh, as opposed to more men being oriented towards specialty care. So Mm -hmm. I think if we look at how we might attract more men, I think, you know, if if it seems to be the case in nursing, it seems to be the case in medicine, I think we need to be careful about too often regarding veterinary medicine as somehow an outlier, uh, something that applies to many other professions somehow doesn't apply to us. I suspect it does. So I think making it clear about all of the opportunities within veterinary medicine to attract the broadest scope of people is going to be in our interest.
0: An interesting data question about what do the specialty demographics look like? Do we see that type of trend for the men that are in the profession? Do we see that type of trend within the the specialty colleges that there may be a higher concentration of men in the colleges? So I definitely will be asking some people for some data. (laughs)
1: i don't know i I haven't seen any data
4: i know i I, I am not boarded in laboratory animal medicine but i work with many colleagues who are and i know in the american college of laboratory animal medicine it's it's majority male um but not by much i think it's close to a 60 40 or maybe a 55 45 but it is majority male but that is a non-clinical
3: yeah yeah i kind of wonder That, that,
4: that doesn't translate well to other specialties such as surgery and Mm -hmm. internal medicine dentistry that type of thing
0: what do you think we can do i mean we do I i think that this question stereotype question is 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 an important one because i do think that that mythology continues to linger right? I I mean, it's not just the articles that are out there. I do think that there's a, a bit of mythology around what it means to have a feminized profession in terms of the type of work, the personalities, as well as salary, and whether or not a society kind of values a more feminized profession in the same way. What in the 70s, we started seeing a lot with the passage of Title IX, we started to see a lot of programs really geared to Girls and young women for the STEM disciplines, and we see, I think, a lot of benefits from that now. Forty years later, do we need the same type of programs for young men now?
3: Good question. I think I think Daryl kind of hit on the fact that that um, to the extent that if it's true that uh, projecting veterinary medicine as a caring profession rather than a, a bioscience. Technical profession, if if that the way that we have um, projected ourselves into society has been part of the problem of attracting men, then I think it's really incumbent upon us to to make it clear that there's a breadth of opportunities in veterinary medicine that don't involve taking care of dogs and cats. Just a lot of worthwhile, societally, personally impactful. Um, roles that you can play as a veterinarian beyond clinical medicine for pets.
1: I think that's true, and I think it also speaks, though, for us to address that much earlier than by the time we get applicants or we even get undergraduates who are considering it. There have been a lot of initiatives trying to get veterinarians into primary and middle school classrooms, for example to illustrate veterinary medicine, and that's great. And I think that's something we need to continue to do. But I think we need to be fairly intentional in those processes. You know, by definition and just by logistics, most of those individuals are gonna be companion animal practitioners. That's just a statistical likelihood. So encouraging them to give those students a wide exposure, not neglecting companion animal medicine for heaven's sake, but to also emphasize there's a lot of other things you can do to the DVM degree, that they may not have even thought about, in fact probably have not, extrapolating from my own experience entering veterinary school, there are all sorts of opportunities that occur to me at any rate.
0: We have three leaders of the profession and one student leader because I I tell you all you have to do is William is being incredibly modest. He is everywhere doing all kinds of things in SAFMA and other groups as well. But one of the things that certainly I, I've noticed is that the leadership of organized veterinary medicine still tends to be overwhelmingly male. Certainly we're seeing a lot of changes there. There are more women deans. There are certainly more women uh, in the House of Delegates. Stacy is VP. Janet Donlin is the CEO of AVMA. But we're definitely kind of still a bit slanted in the demographics for organized veterinary medicine medical leadership. And And I'd like to no, have we just not achieved parity there or, you know, based on the, the, the numbers for students kind of coming out, that's, that's going to probably shift in some time as well. How do we kind of maintain some parity? But how do we get parity now as well? <laughs> um, Stacey, why don't you uh, feel that one?
4: I think when you're looking at female veterinarians who are mid to later career, perhaps, who would be really good to go into leadership position, not that you don't see early career veterinarians do that as well. I think the motivations to move into leadership positions within the profession, mostly within organized veterinary medicine, but there are other opportunities as well. I don't think we've looked at that motivation and really looked at where our associations are to support different ideas on leadership different ways to lead is the way that the association is an association has been doing its meetings or its leadership structure for 50 years. Is that relevant moving forward? And so I think there's a lot of motivation that we have to look at and look at ways to show how the leadership can be mixed in with their professional activities and show all the good that can come from it. As a society, we do encourage men and women to go into leadership positions differently. And I don't think that we recognize that um, a lot within veterinary medicine. And so encouraging women into those positions is gonna be different than encouraging men in those positions. And then also, if you have majority male, they might not be thinking about that as well and how women may have be in different places in their career than they are and really just encouraging that. I think that's really gonna be important with early career veterinarians because you've got, if you define early career as zero to five years for very early career or 10 years, those students have been in a majority female student setting and in profession, unlike myself that was in a majority female student but moved into a majority male profession. So then when they do look at mostly men in the leadership structures, they will think differently. And so I think we need to have really good conversation around that and potentially look at how we're engaging members, association members to move into leadership roles.
1: And I think one of the other changes, at least in areas of the country that I've been, has been the decline of what used to be local veterinary medical organizations, Uh city, county, whatever it may be. And traditionally that I would argue is where people got their start in organized veterinary medicine it was on a very informal local basis and with much many of those organizations disappearing that role has sort of defaulted to the state VMAs so I think there we probably need to work in concert with the state veterinary medical associations to try to help cultivate that next level of, of leadership initially just on committees and that sort of thing and and I think Many, if not most, state VMAs do this really quite well. But if there are ways that the AVMA, for example, could help support that, I think that would be very helpful because I think uh, expecting a young veterinarian, regardless of gender, to take on a leadership role at a higher level, let's say an officer level, even in a state VMA, is pretty daunting. Uh, my experience has been if they get their feet wet on committees, two things happen. They get to see that this isn't that challenging. They can do it and do it well. Moreover, the organization gets a look at them and realizes, boy, this person really has talent. We need to try to move them into the organization in other ways. So I think we need to start organizational organize veterinary medicine at the, at the lower level before we can expect them realistically to take leadership roles in the AVMA, for instance.
4: That's a really good point that you have, Daryl, and I've been working, I'm now seeing those veterinarians now who I worked with as students, they are moving up into leadership positions, and they're actually completely bypassing local VMAs, and in some cases, state VMAs. I think that's definitely something generational, happens to also be a, a gender shift as well, because we have more women graduating. I kind of think that goes back into looking at the motivations for leadership as well for early career veterinarians. I think on the mid-career veterinarians, which I would consider myself as, for those women who have families, there is still a societal expectation that they will prioritize family care. Um, There's also new studies out there showing that Women are also responsible for primarily their their elder care as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was just at a meeting a few weeks ago, and I did have um, a mid-career veterinarian female come to me and say because she was female, uh, not because she was female, because she was unmarried, her brother was married with a family, she has been the one designated to take care of her family, her parents, and she's got to move to a completely different state and probably will have to leave her specialty because there's no jobs there. And so I think we also have to look at the unpaid work that there a lot of women do that's currently a societal expectation. And it hits right at mid-career for women, for a lot of female veterinarians. And then when the thought of coming on board in a leadership capacity happens, if it's not presented in the right way or associations aren't making those those positions relevant or you know, meaningful to them, it, it can be very difficult.
3: And well, I think yeah, I think that's absolutely true, is that uh, it, it's critical that we have the next generation of veterinarians step into leadership roles because there are a lot of, a lot of other people uh, nipping at our heels who would be happy to take leadership roles in veterinary medicine. It's a pretty hot area for investors and in, in the industry is making the profession change pretty rapidly. And at the same time, we're graduating new new veterinarians with a with a tremendous amount of educational debt, which gives them much less flexibility in terms of taking on leadership roles outside of work, sometimes even inside of work. And we also have a, a societal shift of of significant proportions in terms of first marriage and first birth, so that frequently that that first child, if, you're, if you have children, happens just about the time that we're kind of asking you to, to hit your stride and take on leadership roles in your profession. And I think that unless organizations change to allow for that, I think we're going to continue to uh, have this conversation about, about where we get our leadership from, whether it's male or female.
0: I'm glad that you brought back the, the debt issue. It was something that William alluded to earlier. But he, didn't, he didn't allude to it. He actually said that it was something that was really kind of concerning. So, you know, I'd be kind of curious, Doug, especially as a, someone still hanging out in, in practice, in, in clinical practice do you find prospective students and young people just fearful of the debt? Do you see any trends? I mean, all of you are kind of dealing with different kinds of of students. I know my research says that they don't they don't really start thinking about it until after the, the between the period where they hit the, the Vimcast submit button and the time when they actually have to make a decision about where to go, that's the time when they really start seriously thinking about it. We actually had um, an applicant this year who completed the survey and said, "You know, how much are you willing to spend on a DVM education? And, and it's funny, but not. Well, we had someone say $6 million and, and we're like this this kid is nuts like we, should, <laughs> we shouldn't admit this kid at all <laughs> like, I'd like to to hear your thoughts on whether or not debt is discouraging students and is there a gender difference to be found there
3: so it's not discouraging students I think for a lot of us we'd like it somehow to discourage students not in a not in a uh, has has a, a negative effect on our on our applicant pool, but we would like students to grapple with it in a, in a constructive way, to force everybody else to grapple with it in a more constructive way. Because right now, students because they don't, they're not deterred by the level of debt that they're going to incur. Uh, there's not a lot of pushback until after they graduate, sort of till after it's too late. The good thing is that once they do graduate, I think for students who get into clinical practice and sometimes for people who wind up going into industry, they do start making smart decisions about income, about what they can do and what, they're under, what what's under their control in order to, to manage the debt that, they, that they've incurred. But I don't think anybody's come up with any magic bullets to solve our education debt problem.
0: William, I'd like to kind of probe a little bit deeper. I know that apparently your father thinks that you're going to pick up a, a partner while you're in med school. How do your family and friends feel about your career choice? Are they supportive? And of course, now they're going to watch this. So yes, you're going to say, of course they're supportive, right? Um, so, but you know, are they concerned about the debt?
2: I actually talked to my dad about it the other day. I kind of brought it to him saying that I kind of think of it as an investment kind of like buying a house and so of course when you buy a house you're like man that's a lot of money well most people think that. and that's kind of how I think about this and this is better because I won't be making money with the house that I buy but I'll be making money with this lifelong profession so I'll be able to pay it back eventually and uh, my parents and family are very supportive I'd, I would be the first doctor in my family so they're very supportive of that and they kind of were – I've been talking about animals and veterinary medicine for my for most of my life, so they kind of already knew this was going to happen. I kind of didn't sway go anywhere else. But, yeah, they're very supportive. My friends, at least in undergrad, when I always, like, when it got brought up about, like, how much I'd be making, they were like, oh, why? Why are you doing that? I'm like, well, because I, I want to. But it's – because I had a lot of people – I did a pre-med track, actually, so – Medical doctors have a lot of debt, but they're making much more than veterinarians. Trying to equate that is hard to tell my friends and stuff, but my family's very supportive. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on TV. Right, because
0: they're going to see the show later. So one of the things that I I do get concerned about when we talk about the debt-to-income ratio is that we often talk about it in terms of exclusively starting salaries, and, and that's very scary for a lot of people, but it really isn't a true reflection of what the lifespan of earning might look like, right? And so I can see how folks would say, why are you doing that? Especially if you're in a pre-med track. And if you were you know, with pre-dental students, I know that they're kind of like, why on earth are you doing this? Come on over to dentistry. I'd be kind of curious with the rest of you on the panel, what kind of messaging do you think we should take on, not only with the debt, but also kind of thinking about these different kinds of, of messages with recruiting? I think that some of the trends that you've talked about with respect to leadership aren't just true for leadership. I think that they're true in a number of different veins. And so what kinds of messages you know, might help us attract more men?
1: Well, it seems to me that part of the thing we need is a balanced message, not, not neglecting the cost of a veterinary medical education. But my fear is that we are getting so centered on that, that that's what many advisors at the high school level and even before that, as well as at colleges and universities are hearing. And they're only getting part of the picture. If, you know, those are, and in some cases, I found through hard experience that some of those individuals also, have, uh, you know, they're advising for a number of different fields. And if they're being, if one of their hot things in their hit parade is trying to attract more young men into their nursing program, are they likely to say, well, you know, the cost of veterinary medical education is very high. You may want to consider nursing. And if we only give them one side of the queue <clears throat> to look at, we're, we're being our own worst enemy. So I think trying to present a balanced message, not concealing or in any way uh, neglecting the cost, but right now I fear too often we're neglecting the benefits and I don't think we can afford to do that. Yeah,
3: I think it's I think it's important that uh, veterinary medicine recognize that our history is that the sky is always falling. It's, it's, it's always the worst of times and it's not. You know, for for I have so many colleagues. Back in 2008, 2009, there were a couple of new programs um, starting in in the U.S. There were a couple of new of uh, more offshore uh, programs being accredited, and we were in the middle of the Great Recession. And the idea was the sky was falling; that veterinary medicine would never dig its way out. Veterinarians would be living under under bridges in boxes because there would be no jobs and you know we run the clock back forward you know nine or ten years and you can't hire clinical veterinarians Uh, Mm -hmm. i mean the demand out there is is intense almost regardless of where in the country you'd like to 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 live and work so I, i think it really is important for us to send out a positive message you know yeah there are some challenges but they're not challenges that, uh, that we can't overcome, and there will be a generation of very successful veterinarians, regardless of the field, whether it's clinical or not, that they go into uh, in the next 20 or 30 years.
4: So to, to piggyback on what Daryl and Doug are saying, because I absolutely agree, the other thing is, is we really need to look at the, to, to borrow Daryl's Darryl, words, the full breadth of career options that we have within veterinary medicine. Um, I no longer say that there's alternative career paths or non-traditional. Everything is a veterinary career path. We have amazing opportunities. Many of them pay very well. You may not be building wealth through practice ownership, but you could be building wealth with a company or another employer that invests heavily in your retirement or who invests heavily in additional training for you by obtaining certifications or degrees that type of thing. You can have opportunities to live in various parts of the United States, have a very fulfilling career in using your veterinary degree to better animal health, human health, society, the public health, you name it. And so I think when we present veterinary medicine as this really broad profession, building upon our concept of one health, because we're really the only profession talking about it when it touches a lot of other professions lot of opportunities coming out of some recent meetings um, that I've had at Texas A&M, multiple meetings actually, where they're really looking at entrepreneurship for veterinarians, building upon what the tech sector has to offer. The possibilities are, are limitless. I think we need to be very creative. And this does come at a time, though, when there are a lot of opportunities for veterinarians even in private practice. I do think in working with the students, one piece of advice I would have for students, and this might potentially also play into recruitment for students, even down into the um, elementary, middle middle school, and high school, is you might want to look, be geographically open to where you would want to have your career. Don't limit yourself. This is not a field where you want to limit yourself. Be open to different career paths be open to living in different parts of the country. I have my preferred parts of the country. I don't live there, but I visit there. <laughs> but I have a great career and I, I still like where I live. So I think there's um, a, a lot of opportunity out there that we don't capitalize on and that we don't communicate to others as well.
0: Yes, I'm, I'm smiling and kind of chuckling over here because some of that type of Advice and guidance was given to our resident student here Um, (laughs) pre-show, you know, to some degree, allow your career to be moved by happy accidents. Allow yourself lots of options and, and be open to them. I have really one last major question, unless you all have um, some additional questions, but um, well, I guess I have two. I know William is also working with a couple of summer programs at Purdue this summer, and I know you just finished one. What was the composition of that group?
2: It was majority female.
0: I mean, I certainly see this also with uh, the career fair that I host each spring. So the other question I guess I have for you is, I know that there have been a couple of schools that have done these kind of mockumentaries about what it's like to be a man at a, at a vet school these days. Uh, any comments?
2: I I hang out with a lot of the, the, the men in our class. So to get that, that male contact, because you might not think it's a big deal, but when you're At least in all my groups i'm the only guy and so i kind of a lot of the references are lost on me and i'm like okay okay (laughs) and so i it's good to have contact with other people to kind of understand where you're coming from the same could be said with a a fellow minority students at my institution so i hang out with them a lot because Mm -hmm. they kind of understand where i'm coming from so i kind of just any within in any minority group and even though males are a minority in veterinary medicine it's kind of being able to identify with uh, people like you and understand that even though you're not the most prevalent gender in the profession, that you still have to get your ideas out there and stuff.
1: I think also um, we can, again, learn from uh, other professions, including nursing. So one of the things that uh, nursing, when they had days for invited applicants, they found it to be very important for young men interested in their nursing program to meet current nursing students who are men. So it's one thing to have some sort of formal program, but uh, I would argue a lot more, I, I don't underestimate their value either, but a lot of the real bang for the buck, I think, are in these informal connections that are made with current students who can, tell the potential applicant, you know, what the school is like, how the program works, et cetera, et cetera, and reassure them a bit. And the same happens if those students can have interactions with pre-veterinary clubs on campus. The challenge is how to get to those students who, uh, before the pre-veterinary club, that they not turn off on veterinary medicine and never even get to that point because we can't load all of that on the backs of uh, students like William. You know, they they have a few other things going on in their life. But I do think that that could be a very reassuring thing. We knew that for a long period of time, that if we were trying to attract, for example, students of color, it was very important for them to see role models within the school, both students and faculty and staff. And the same is true, increasingly, for young men who are looking at our programs.
0: That's a great point. And I, I, one that I'm glad you made, I was going to make that as well, that we see that when we are recruiting students or faculty of color. We certainly used to see that certainly in some other programs I've historically worked with. You really try to help people make some of those connections. For us, there's going to be a need to help young men make that connection so that they have someone to talk to about whatever (laughs) misreferences may be happening during the course of their day. That's really, really important. The last question that I I have for each of you is for AAVMC. I do a lot of research on a lot of different issues within academic veterinary medicine. and, And this is a project that, you know, looking at where are the men is, is a huge process because there's so many different factors that kind of things that cause the shift and things that kind of perpetuate it. But I would, I would really kind of be curious to know within kind of our scope at AAVMC, what kinds of advice would you give me in terms of, of research projects?
3: I'd love to, Lisa, I would love to know better the marketing plan, if you will, for our profession. You know, like what what messages are we giving out, and what messages are is our audience hearing? Mm. And how is, you know how's that you know how does that play out five years later, ten years later, in terms of who applies to veterinary programs and then who gets admitted, and then what their roles are in the profession? And that's a that's a long term you know perspective. But I think short term, I, I think it's really important that the profession understand how we have. Um, positions ourselves in society and how much that has made a difference in terms of who we are.
4: I would suggest um, reaching out to pre-vet counselors that you know. uh, May also want to reach out to the American Pre-Veterinary Medical Association. Um, I know the AVMA um, through one of the staff members at AVMA who's also a veterinarian um, is now working closely with the APVMA and they're looking for closer relationships as well. So that might be something uh, to be to look into.
1: I'd, I'd be interested in a better answer to where the men are going. So I think there are some real opportunities just given your physical location at this point, next to the AAMC and so on, because we can get some data from the STEM statistics that you alluded to. But I don't have a sense for a more our, our students who previously might have chosen veterinary medicine within STEM, are they now choosing medicine or engineering or whatever? And even within the biological sciences, which is where, while women are much better represented in STEM, they're very heavily biased toward the biological sciences and not toward engineering, computing sciences, and so on. So I don't, certainly, I, I can only speak from our myself, I don't understand exactly what's happening. Are there fewer men applying to STEM in general? Mm-hmm. And we're still getting proportionately about the same number we ever did, in which case then I think we have a different issue. If we now are seeing more the being attracted to uh, outside the biological sciences, or, or within the biological sciences, are more than being attracted to medicine, or I haven't seen data to address any of that and I think without knowing that, some of the questions you posed uh, you know such as where them in, uh, I can only say I don't know yeah. uh, I really don't know
4: I, I would suggest since you do have a close relationship um, with the AAMC, if you had a population of, of, of students, who were actually in different, either pre-professional programs or in the professional programs, so say veterinary medicine, medicine, human medicine, maybe perhaps osteopathic medicine, dentistry, something like that, not ask, well, why did you choose medicine? Why did you choose medicine over veterinary medicine? Mm -hmm. Why did you choose dentistry over veterinary medicine? Or why did you not choose veterinary medicine? If we just keep asking why did you choose a particular field, that's going to take us one way. We need to know why they're not choosing veterinary medicine, period, or why they're not choosing it in comparison to other um, professional programs. I mean, I guess the same thing could be said for the STEM fields, as Daryl said, but that kind of gets back to looking at the messaging that Doug was saying about. We're not going to be able to direct the messaging until we know exactly why they're not choosing it. Not why the men in the program select it. My my guess is it's going to be very similar to what women are going to say. Sure. But if you look at why men are not selecting it, then you have some messaging points. Sure.
0: Sure. I'll, I'll say this, that when I'm out recruiting at national conferences focusing on undergraduate students, you know, I, I never say this is you know here's the brochure and these are all of the amazing things that you can do in veterinary medicine i usually ask students what is it that you want to do what do you see yourself doing most of those conferences students are like oh i'm going to med school because i want to research cancer and i'm like you can do that over here <laughs> come on over let me tell you how you can how you can get to that place on this path and part of it really is just this lack of awareness about that there are other options to kind of get to the place their desired endpoint, and so I do think that messaging. I think that that the messaging itself isn't. Uh, it may or may not be certainly influenced by gender, but I think really it is um, how do we turn some of our messaging on its head to really help help people understand that that if they have this vision of what they think they want to do with their life and their career, that this is a profession that can aid them in getting there. So,
1: I, can I just pose a question? I wonder if, you know, we're, we're very attuned, even in our discussion, toward the usual progression of undergraduate students toward a major and then to a profession. Should we be more intentionally broadening that to include particularly that segment of the military or people exiting the military who have been particularly in the medical corps, for example, who have had experiences uh, in healthcare, not the physicians, but the, the sure. staff support. Mm -hmm. and reaching out to them, first of all, I would argue that's probably going to be much more a male-dominated pool, Mm -hmm. but they've had some experience in medicine for a variety of reasons. They may or may not have a primary focus on medicine per se, but I don't think we, to my knowledge, I don't think we've ever tried to focus on that group as a potential applicant pool, and I wonder if we shouldn't do so.
0: I think it's a great idea. I will. Take that back to the team and definitely spend some time kicking kicking that around. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. This has been a really great discussion. I don't think that sadly we have solved the world's problem. <laughs> We've raised more questions. No, no solutions. But I really thank each of you for taking some time to discuss men in veterinary medicine and and kind of where they are and where, how do we get them back? Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is our last show for the season. We may put out a one or two special bonus episodes, our shorter episodes during the summer, but we will definitely see you back online in August as we kick off season three of diversity and inclusion on air. That show will feature Dr. Dr. Kathy Wang Lau. She is an intercultural communication specialist and, and our season opener will focus on microaggressions. So um, be sure to look out for that and always, as always, follow us on Facebook for all kinds of updates and posts and uh, lots of information about diversity in veterinary medicine. With that, thank you again to each of our guests and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.